Lord, we are amazed that you would breathe out your word through this writer, Mark, as he's leaning on uh, Peter's experience. And Lord, give us a gospel that paints a picture of you being the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Over and over again, we have seen that reinforced by evidence of who you are and evidence of what you have done, and Lord, evidence in the context of the Gospels of what you knew you had to come to do. And this morning, Lord, we want to be strengthened once again by your word. We want uh, to allow you to have freedom to to enter into our hearts and, and do work there. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, Would you make us, for your sake, we ask in your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure that this week, a number of people having experienced the tragedies that have taken place across our country, even particularly here in California, they have said these words, life just isn't fair. To have pretty much the whole town of paradise destroyed by fire just doesn't seem to be fair. To go out for an evening with friends and have a gunman come in and shoot up the place and uh, numbers of people die just doesn't seem to be fair. And I'm sure that the even, even we who have gone through very small trials compared to those things have often said, whether it's in our heart or kind of under our breath, boy, life just isn't fair. But if there's ever anyone who understood that statement, it is Jesus. Because we come to a text where we see for Jesus life is unfair. His final hours were certainly unjust and illegal. For example, in capital cases like Jesus' trial, a trial at night was forbidden. And in cases where there's a guilty verdict, there was supposed to be a second day and a session to ensure the, 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 the trial was actually fair. And those are just some of the incredible issues that make the trial of Jesus a farce. Yet it was an effective farce because it accomplished the wishes of the Jewish or the religious leadership at that particular time. The bitter cup of injustice and suffering that Jesus anticipated is now definitely before him. He is is experiencing that Maybe in the terms of, of, of our younger generation, or maybe this is what you, you know too. It's kind of like getting on that roller coaster and you're going up the hill. Clickety, 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 click. And the panic starts setting in and, and the reality of what's going to happen is there. And you get to the top and you are scared to pieces. There's a sense in which the beginning has started here, and yet the cup that Jesus has is yet to come. He's anticipating it. But it's all going to start moving really fast here. Now, if you talk to the average person on the street, their idea 
uh, of the record of um, the Bible is simply that it's a collection of man's views, man's ideas about God put together. That the Gospels are simply a loosely thrown record of various events or eyewitness accounts of people just kind of thrown together to, to give some history to this person, Jesus. But that, friends, is not a realistic view at all. Because if you've been a reader of Mark's gospel, you recognize that it has not been carelessly thrown together. No, instead, it's been carefully and meticulously crafted to give account of Jesus' life and his ministry. It is complete with irony, and in our text today, we're going to see that. Double meanings, foreshadowing, and other literary subtleties. But Mark has been arguing since the beginning of the book. In fact, go back to chapter 1 and verse 1 and notice what it says. It identifies here the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what he's been arguing, that Jesus is this Christ, the very Son of God. Of God, and that he's come into this, this, uh, this world preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's chapter 1, verse 15. So, but Mark has been arguing this. He's been arguing ultimately that, that Jesus is the suffering servant, chapter 10, verse 45, and he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, Mark is carefully presenting the facts of this Passion Week. And as we come to our text today, we need to see how Mark then is unfolding this text. Because from verses 52 or 53 to 72, there is a structure, and that structure reveals then what he's doing. Let's read verses 53 and 54 again. And they led Jesus... To the high priest. Remember, he has just been arrested, and this rabble mob has, has gotten him. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Then verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So as we come to our text, we see that Jesus is being compared to Peter. There's going to be a story about Jesus, and there's going to be a story about Peter. Jesus is in the house. Peter is in the courtyard. Jesus is put on trial, yes, but Peter is also on trial. So the trials of Jesus and Peter are two sides of the same coin. And as he's been doing since the beginning of his passion, Jesus is modeling for us what faithfulness looks like. But Peter, as one of the disciples, is modeling for us failure in a dramatic way. Now, Mark once again gives us this picture of what faithfulness means and what it doesn't mean. So what we have here in these two accounts are, are two accounts that are running parallel to each other. At, at the same time, a trial taking place in the house, in the courtroom, and a trial that's taking, out, taking place outside the house in the courtyard. One with Jesus and one with Peter. And so this morning I would like for us to consider 
the, the, the central idea of this text, just allow the content of the text to, to drill into your heart and ask these questions. Mark is, is asking the question, do you really know who Jesus is? And are you ready to testify your allegiance to him by declaring that you are one of his followers? Now, throughout Mark's gospel, as, as I've said, he's declaring who Jesus is. But he's also then, especially in the latter part of the gospel, challenging us about the fact or the question, are you one of his followers? Are you one of his disciples? It's a, it's a good question. Are you a, a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you loyal to him? For Peter, there is, there is no true self sacrifice or true allegiance to Jesus simply by physically following Jesus. It isn't enough. He isn't truly following Jesus. Actually, right now, he's merely trailing behind him. Now, I want to begin then by looking at Jesus, who is on trial in the courthouse. Jesus is now going to be put on trial, but the court will not be looking for the truth. They've already decided that the trial must lead to a guilty verdict and ultimately to a death sentence. As you've seen things develop in Mark's gospel, these religious leaders, they want to arrest him, they want to seize him, they want to put him to death. That's what Mark unfolds for us, and we're seeing that progression But Mark emphasizes for us that there is no valid testimony against Jesus to be found anywhere. But their efforts will begin, first of all, with some false witnesses, and secondly, it will be a bogus accusation of blasphemy. And let's first of all consider then these false accusations, which ultimately lead to the fact that he is not guilty. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against them, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against them, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, in recent months, We in our country have had to endure the antics put on display for the world to see regarding the accusations of now um, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Since his affirmation, the reluctant media has finally revealed that numerous women who had given testimony to the fact that they had been raped by him had simply lied. And not only that, some supporting male witnesses have also quickly recanted their false testimony. And to any rational person, it is clear that they were being used by political powers to derail his eventual place on the Supreme Court. Now, please understand this. I am not trying to be political here. This is just what has happened in our country. You can look at it politically, but you can also look at it biblically. What was done to the, to the prospective justice during those hearings by these false witnesses and those who put them up to, uh, to it is clearly 
ethically and morally reprehensible. But why, we sh- why should we be surprised at all? Sinful man will do all he can do to get his way. If he wants it, he'll do it. Even if it means bringing false testimony against someone who is innocent. Now we know that Brett Kavanaugh is not innocent. In the sense of, he's not Jesus. He's a sinful creature. He's a sinful human being. Jesus is not. But this is nothing new, is it? This kind of behavior has happened to many throughout the ages, and this is what we find then happening to Jesus here in this text. And what this passage reveals is the ineptitude of his conspirators. They can't even get their witnesses to agree. I mean, if you're going to arrest him first without any evidence, and then now cry and trump up some witnesses, at least have them agree. But they can't do it. And that's what Mark is showing us here. There is no evidence to bring a legitimate accusation against Jesus. Now certainly there's some truth to what they were saying. Jesus did mention that the temple would be destroyed and that in three days he would raise it up. But clearly he wasn't talking about the physical temple. We know that he was talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. Something far more important than the physical temple. But of course, that just went near, near, near to those people because they just, that meant it kind of slipped by them, okay? For those of you, all right. It just, they don't, they don't get it. Why? Because they have in their mind one thing. This man has become a menace to us. He's, gonna, he's derailing our authority. We want him out of here. And they're not even willing to listen to what he has to say. Now, it's true that Jesus did speak to the disciples during the Olivet Discourse, and he explained that the temple would be destroyed. But that destruction was not Jesus' retaliation so much as it was a judgment on them by God. Here's what is clear. The charge of the false witnesses is revealed to be a lie. Now, I want to take us to Proverbs chapter 6, in verses 16 through 19, the passage you probably know, and I want to ask you how many of the characteristics of what God hates are taking place during this encounter. So the passage is up on your screen. And just think about this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. I mean, we're seeing all of those things on display here. The Lord hates it. And in particular, he hates a false witness who brings an accusation that is a complete, bold-faced lie. 
Now, I do think it's interesting in the, in the description that they give here. They talk about this building made with hands and not made with hands. And one of the questions there is, what is being talked about here? And I think it could, you know, some people say it might be, you know, human hands versus made by God. It could be made on earth versus made in heaven or physical versus spiritual. But I think it's actually referencing that which is made by the hands of man, meaning the idolatrous nature of it versus that which is pure, because what had happened to the temple? The temple had become now a place of idolatry. People come to worship at the temple, in the temple, but they're not worshiping the God of the temple. And when Jesus comes, they don't want to listen to him who is ultimately the temple. They want to focus on the building. And of course, it, it, does, it does speak to us. It does kind of beg the question, what are we doing? And how easy it is for us then to substitute what God says is holy with that which appears to be a place of holiness. It becomes the, the, the focus of our attention. The, fo- the form becomes the focus of our attention rather than that which is the substance. Even Ed was talking about that this morning as we began the service. Stuff you can't take with you. But you can take your relationship with Christ with you. And friends, we can so easily be guilty of the same thing. The form of our church, a building, a stained glass window, an organ, drums, a guitar, a steeple, a pew, a certain translation of the Bible, a donut, a jelly-filled donut. And we can get so consumed with those things to the discredit of actually just once again resting in the beauty of Jesus Christ, worshiping him for who he is. Now the substance of our worship is Christ and him crucified, which bears fruit then in a variety of forms, but those forms are the fruit of the substance. Why do we sing? We don't sing because singing is important. We sing because Christ is important. And singing is the means by which we can declare to him praise. See, it's not about the singing. It's about the substance of the singing. Why is it that we try and keep things neat or tidy and organized? It's not because we love tidiness and organization, although some of you love it more than others. And some of you don't love it more than others, like me, all right? But the issue is the substance. So friends, we can get so caught up with that. Now, in our text, even the religious leaders, having attempted to bring any accusation against Jesus through these false witnesses, they realize that they've failed and are forced to take another approach. But notice... There is no remorse for their sinful attempt to bring a barrage of false testimonies. I mean, their witnesses do not agree. They're not saying, well, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. This is unethical. No, they don't care. They have a goal, and that is to murder Jesus. Now, how does Jesus respond to all of these false witnesses? Look at verse 60. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. See, the high priest is bringing further guilt on himself by even asking these questions because the evidence is there that there is no evidence and he's still challenging Jesus for an answer that would incriminate him. Jesus remains silent before his accusers, fulfilling what was prophesied in the scriptures. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a, a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sh- a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. My friends, how... How does Jesus' response to these false witnesses help you when you're blamed for something that you did not do? How does his response give you perspective when you see injustice taking place around you in this sinful world? How does his example guide your heart when you've been misjudged or are the recipient of that injustice? Friends, there are times when we just are to be silent and not try and fight back. But there are times when we ought to speak. So Jesus is found not guilty. And now I want us to see this other false accusation where he's found guilty. The false witnesses didn't work. But now, with frustration in his voice, the high priest, who is just done with this, I'm sure this is you know, it's the middle of the night, everyone's been woken up, there's, there's not a, a full Sanhedrin there, there's a, a number of them there, but he just wants to get this done and dusted and move on, because the Sabbath is coming. And so it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, friends, just from a literary perspective, we've, we've, we've had the beginning of the, of the book uh, start off with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has been on display for us all this time, and this is the first time now that that statement about Jesus comes out of the mouth of an unbeliever. He's asking the question. He's getting to the heart of the matter. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, these are the labels that Mark has been using. He's the Christ, in other words, the Messiah. He's the Son of God, or the blessed, the Son of the Blessed One. It would be God. And to the high priest's direct question, Jesus gives a direct answer. He was silent before his accusers, but he's quick to open his mouth and speak the truth when an opportunity arises. And here's what he says I am. Now, if you are a student of God's word at all, you will recognize that that statement is no just kind of like passing expression. I am, of course, is the title God gives to himself. It is the the lion's roar of Jesus' self-identification as the Son of God. And Jesus then adds a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel uh, 7, 13, 
to predict the future exaltation of the Son of Man and that he will be coming in his role to judge. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know how before in the accounts of Jesus teaching and ministering and people said, man, he speaks with authority. To be sure, this is not just some passing statement. He is speaking carefully and clearly and with authority. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am standing here in this kangaroo court answering your questions, but one day you will be standing in the courtroom of the Son of Man and you will have to give account to me. Now, if you don't know what a kangaroo court is, it doesn't happen in Australia all right, it's, it's, it's a court that basically is a mock court in which the principles of law and justice are disregarded or perverted so that they can reach a certain goal. And that's exactly what we have going on here. There was nothing legal about this. There was nothing right about this. These were all trumped up efforts. To which now the high priest tears his garments in dramatic fashion and accuses Jesus of blasphemy, calling for a quick decision about his guilt. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Now friends, there's a frenzied tone going on here. There's a stirring up of those who are part of that might want to say party, religious party. If you want to put it in kind of a religious political terms, he's stirring up his base with this statement. That's blasphemy. So Jesus was accused of blasphemy, but is that a true accusation? What is the accusation of blasphemy according to Scripture? In a technical sense, it is a deliberate and direct attack upon the honor of God with intent to insult him. Is that what Jesus is doing? Jesus claims to be both Christ and the Son of God. And from the perspective of the Sanhedrin, that's blasphemy. So Jesus is sentenced to death, not because he claims, his claims are misunderstood, but because they are understood and rejected. And it's worth noting that the first and last words Jesus' enemies speak in his presence are, why does this man speak like that? This is Mark 2, verse 7. He is blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. The charge of blasphemy did not come because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah but because he dared to claim to be the son of God. See, they were anticipating a Messiah coming. They were anticipating this Messiah was going to be a deliverer, like the Old Testament deliverers. Think of Judges, where you had deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. You think of Joshua, who was a deliverer. They want now a deliverer for this moment, to, to rid them of the oppression of Rome. They were expecting a man. Well, they have a man, but this man is also God. And so they're not rejecting the man, they're rejecting him as being God. 
And so the irony of this account is that the religious leadership, in its attempts to bring an accusation against Jesus, stooped to bringing multiple witnesses against him that proved to be lies. But now Jesus bears witness to the truth, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And friends, it's only blasphemy if Jesus is lying. But it's not blasphemy if he's telling the truth. What's your name? Rod Phillips. No, it's not. Well, yeah, it is. That's blasphemy. Well, you asked if I was that person, and I said, I am. And I'm telling you the truth. But those in the courtroom had no room for listening to the truth. Their minds were made up way before the trial even began. They didn't have ears to hear. And so, again, the irony is that by rejecting Jesus' claims, the religious leaders are themselves blaspheming Christ, denying that he is actually the Son of God. And in so doing, they commit the very crime of which they judge Jesus to be guilty. Now, friends, I think what, what begs the question here as we're thinking about this is this question, are we biblical listeners? When Jesus comes into our world and he speaks some truth, maybe a truth that goes against what we think or what we have been doing, or maybe it would, it would somehow upset the cart of, of our lifestyle, and he speaks, do we have ears that are willing to listen to what he has to say? Are we quick to make judgments based on our own thoughts? Are we quick to jump on the bandwagon of what others are saying about a person or a topic or an issue? Are we too quick to jump to a conclusion without actually looking at the facts in light of Scripture? And friends, in our social media era, we are so quick to respond rather than to patiently listen because we want to have our say, but sometimes, you, you ever kind of sent those little notes on Facebook or whatever it might be, and you know, five minutes later you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And friends, we're just so quick to get caught up in the mire of stuff. What we should be doing is being willing to be patient, slow to speak, slow to anger, because we want to listen biblically and measure what is being said with what the scriptures actually teach. May God help us to be faithful, biblical listeners. There's always things for us to learn. We have not arrived at every bit of truth. Now, thinking about our response. They all condemned him to death, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. So he was arrested first, and then evidence is sought to bring Jesus uh, to a, a verdict of guilty. And now with the cry of blasphemy, the kangaroo court has found their justification. And then the injustice turns into abuse. Spitting, beating, mocked cries for him to prophesy. Now, we know 
<laughs> as we're looking at this passage, that it is chock full of fulfillment of prophecy. And that Jesus has already prophesied that these things would be happening. And yet, those who are his uh, abusers are mocking him as a prophet. You'll find that in the next encounter, they will mock him as being a king. Mark is laying out some things here. And so the goal has been to expedite the trial of Jesus so that he can be found guilty and then quickly handed over to Pilate for sentencing before the beginning of the Sabbath day. His arrest, his trial, and guilty verdict has been done and dusted. It's a good day's work for the religious leaders. But they, even in their sinfulness, are putty in the hands of God because God's plan is working perfectly. (laughs) Even through their sinfulness. Now, Peter's going to fail. We're going to see that here in just a minute. But he would go on to write to the churches and give counsel to those who are suffering because of their persecution in Christ. And so let's think through what he says here and, and, and just kind of let it settle in. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a great example we have in Christ. Jesus on trial, the innocent found guilty. Now, let's move and consider Peter on trial. He's on trial in the courtyard. We've just witnessed Jesus on trial, and he has proven to be a solid rock. Now we turn to Peter on trial, who will prove to be a cracked pebble. Remember, it was Peter who had boasted his unfailing allegiance to Jesus. Even if the other disciples fail him, I will not. It was Peter who had been so bold and willing to to face uh, uh, this, this army of soldiers and to die for Jesus just a few moments earlier, seeking to defend Jesus and ultimately cutting off the ear of a servant. Of course, Jesus heals him again, but he was bold enough to stand up to that group of soldiers. But now as Jesus is taken away, the rest of the disciples have fled and we see Peter, who we're told is following at a distance. In other words, he was half following Jesus. And friends, when we half follow Jesus, we think that we're close enough to be with Jesus, but we also think that we're far enough enough away to be safe. Safe from the shame that comes with association of being with Jesus. But the truth is, we're not really 
with Jesus, and any feelings of safety are a figment of our imaginations. But Jesus has a lesson. It's going to be a hard, it's going to be a terrible lesson for Peter, but Peter is going to learn this lesson this day. But it will be a lesson that would strengthen Peter for years to come. He doesn't know it yet, but it will. Now, it is through Peter that we can learn some lessons about our struggles in faithfully following Jesus. And so there are three accusations that are given against Peter during the rest of this passage. Two from a servant girl and one from the bystanders. And these three accusations remind us of our failures and they reveal to us three common ways we're tempted to sin sinfully and respond sinfully when we are identified as followers of Christ. Now, let's read this first section, verse 66 and following. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. What is his first response to claims that he is a follower of Jesus? Well, I'm using the word deflection. Deflection. Evasion might be another way we could describe it. He claims not to know anything about what she's talking about. Now, isn't that one of the responses that we wrestle with? Someone, clearly an enemy of the gospel, is freely belching out accusations about Christ and about the church and about his gospel, and part of us just wants to get away from the confrontation. We don't want to be called out. We don't want any trouble. We don't want to endure the shame at the hands of a gospel heckler, so we just slink away. And How many of you have cats? I think it's funny when my cat slinks. You know, you go from being upright and all of a sudden they're like flat, kind of like, you know, just like, just well, it's slinking right across the floor. It's just, it's funny. And that's what we do. We just, we just don't want any part of it. We, we claim not to have any real knowledge by our actions and, and we, we just kind of don't want to be connected to what's going on or what's being talked about. And, and oftentimes we find this situation coming up at school, at work, or in a public context where someone just feels boldly and freely, I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ or talk about the church or just say things that are really offensive. And you're just like, I just don't want to get into it. And so you're, you're silent. Rather than speak up and identify yourself as a follower of Christ, you slink away, hoping that no one will notice. But the problem is that once you've started down that path with someone, it becomes even harder to stand up the next time. Because then the question is, well, why didn't you stand up last time? And so you end up having this wrestling match in you. It's like, well, I didn't say it last time. Now I have double the shame I have to wrestle with because I didn't stand up last time. And if I stand up now, now I'm going to get heckled because I didn't stand up before. And you see how this works. And so what you end up doing is slinking away again. It's the safer route. But when that happens, the enemy has won. And you have effectively been silenced. And your silence is maintained because of your ongoing 
weakness. Now listen, Mark reminds us that Peter's deflected words, I neither know or understand what you mean, are followed immediately by the somber words and the rooster crowed. And you would hope, and this is what Mark is trying to remind us of, you would hope that that would catch Peter's attention. But it doesn't seem to face him. He just wants to get away from his association with Jesus. But the trial is not over. This is the second way that he responds. Verse 69 and 70. And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the, the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Now this girl isn't giving up. She's persistent, isn't she? She approaches him the second time, and she also involves the, the bystanders. So she's not just speaking to Peter. She's kind of speaking to everyone around and Peter, right? Drawing them in. And she says repeatedly, this man is one of them. The tense of the Greek there is a repeated statement. Peter's now on the spot. It isn't just a girl calling him out, but the bystanders are there kind of waiting to find out what he's going to say. What's he to do? And I'm sure his conscience must have been gripping him at that moment. He's thinking to himself, you gave in to the first accusation. Maybe it's time for you to man up and stand up for Jesus. You can cut a man's ear off because you're willing to die for Jesus, but now you're not willing even to be associated with him. Don't you remember the words of loyalty when you said, even if I die, I will not deny you? His conscience must have been saying those things. But Peter fails once again, and rather than admit to this girl and these bystanders that he is a follower of Jesus, the text just says, and he denied it. Now, why would Peter wish to deny his association with Jesus? Was, was he fearing for his life? Did he feel shame for his association with Jesus? I want to draw your attention to a verse of scripture that has been a huge help to me through the years, and it's Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Proverbs 29 and verse 25, it says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. All right, you fear man, you're gonna be entrapped. If you trust in the Lord, you will be safe. And so the question then is, how do we fear man? And I think there's three ways that we can look at it. I'll just touch on it briefly here, but consider if these are ways and areas where you struggle with the fear of man. First of all, when we are afraid of what man might think about us. Oh no, they think I'm a Christian. Right? Or we're afraid of what man might say say about us? Oh, look at that guy over there. He's like one of those Bible-believing Christians over there. He goes to church every week, man. Ooh. You know what I'm talking about, right? No one likes that. And we're worried about what people think. We're also worried about what people say. But ultimately, we're afraid of what man might do to us. You know those Christians, they're always telling us that we can't do this and can't do that. They think we're on the moral high ground. Let's go and get them, all right? Maybe that hasn't happened necessarily, but there are elements of that. And the fear of man rises up and is consumed by these things. So I wonder if Peter is struggling with that. I wonder if that's what is consuming him at this point in time. 
Well, I think the answer is yes. He, they're asking the question, he's not willing to answer it honestly. But there's a progression going on here. There's, the, there's this uh, um, deflection, there's this denial, and this last one, I'm calling it demonstration. And you'll have to bear with me so I can explain it. After a little while, the text says, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So something about Peter, his clothing, his accent, his, his behavior betrays the fact that he's Galilean. Now, you, you know and I know we've, we interact with people from different places around the world and how they speak, the words they choose to use, the clothing they have on, and sometimes just the, 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 the mannerisms of their body that they've learned living in a particular culture um, flows out. For example, you know, I grew up in England, and the English have always tend to, to make a statement with a question. You know, the, the, the worship was great, wasn't it? They always have this question at the end, right? You just, just pick that up and watch TV and you'll see that, right? It's part of the culture. And so you pick up on that. Or, or just the, the certain ways that, that words are formed. There's something about him that these people saw that he was from Galilee. Now, Peter had failed Jesus three times in the garden, failing because he, he fell asleep when he should have been praying. And now Peter is failing in the courtyard, denying Jesus when he should be confessing him. And so again, Peter has failed Jesus by deflecting the question and outright denying that he's a follower of Christ. The question now is, will he be teachable? Will he confess his failure and admit that he's a follower of Christ? How does he respond? Well, by demonstration. He not only denies Jesus, interestingly, he can't even mention his name. Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean, but he began to invoke a curse on himself. I do not know this man of whom you speak. By demonstration, I'm seeking to paint a picture here that this now moves into a new territory where he seeks to act and speak and, and behave in a way that reinforces his denial of Christ, that seeks to, to um, betray his association with him. So in dramatic fashion, he invokes a curse on himself and backs it up by a swear. Now, that's not a swear word. That's an oath. Let's put it in modern terms. This is how it would play out in a modern context. If I am lying, may God strike me dead. I don't know him. Or, I cross my heart and hope to die if I'm not telling you the truth. Or, on my mother's life, I promise you I am not who you think I am. Fortunately, we dads are out of that equation. We're thankful for it, right? But see, this is the kind of stuff. He, he, he is invoking a curse on himself if what their accusation, what they're saying is true about him. So this is moving here from trying to slink away to simply saying, no, that's not true, to now, let me show you by my behavior and my words and my actions that I am not who you say I am. The problem is, he is. And friends, the progression we see in Peter's response is a warning to us. 
We may want to avoid the question. We might even be willing to deny our association with him, but we might also find ourselves entrapped by our failures and as a result begin to act and behave in a way that undermines who we are in Christ. So it can come through words, the kind of language we use, the way we speak about other people, worldly or gutter talk, depending on our context. Not because that is who we really are, but in that moment, we're so ashamed to be identified with Christ, we would rather find comfort in being identified with the people who are before us. It can also come through our behavior. We can be intimidated into action by the manipulative words of others. Right? So someone might say, I hope you're not one of those crazy old-fashioned extremist Christians who have a problem with XYZ and stop all of us from having fun. And of course, no one in this room wants to be crazy or old-fashioned or an extremist or if Christians is a bad thing, I don't wanna be that either. So we end up being manipulated into silence and also into doing things that we should never be doing in the first place. Or going places that we have no business going. Not because we really want to, but because we, we have not begun by saying, I am a follower of Christ. And so we get sucked in and we get drawn away. My friends, is this true of you? Do you struggle to identify with Christ among those who mock and scorn him and his gospel. I mean, I think, I think the climate of our culture, and I'm moving kind of into a political illustration, but well, you don't see a lot of, you know, make America great bumper stickers in the Bay Area. It's because people don't, they, they fear that if you put that on your car that someone's gonna do damage to your car. You see what I'm saying? whether that's what your political position is or not. The culture has created this kind of fear, and the same is true about Christianity. We identify ourselves as a follower of Christ, and we're working in an organization or a business where it might be, you know, their, their values are not biblical values, and we're like, well, I'm going to work here, but I'm not going to say who I am, and, you know. But who are you? <laughs> and Jesus wants us to recognize that we, if we are his children, he wants us to acknowledge that fact. Now, no sooner had Peter uttered the words, the rooster crowed the second time. How would he respond? Well, his response is twofold, isn't it? It says, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And I summarize that. First of all, he, he remembered the words of Jesus. And I think what we have here, his breaking down and weeping, is this place of repentance where he's without excuse. He, he, he is in the mercy of Christ, and he realizes now who he really is. Luke's gospel gives us a little bit more window into this. Chapter 22, verse 61, we're told there that at that moment of his denial, he looked across the courtyard and met the eyes of Jesus, and that would be his salvation because what he found there in those eyes was not condemnation, but compassion. The trial was over, and Peter finally saw himself for who he really was. 
Jesus was not trying to slap Peter down, but he was trying to teach Peter. Now here at the end of Mark's gospel, in this passion account, we have um, this incredible parallel between Peter and Judas, side by side. We looked at Judas last week, and we're looking now at Peter today. And both of them fail. But only one found hope. Peter remembered the Lord's word and wept bitterly and turned to Jesus for forgiveness. He placed his hope in the promise of restoration. Jesus had said earlier in chapter 14, we see this, that he would go before the disciples, which should include Peter, to Galilee. You're going to fall. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to fall away. But I'm going to see you in Galilee. Those words now come back to him, as well as in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus said to Peter, When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So he repented. He hung on to the words of Christ. By stark contrast, Judas had no hope, there was no repentance, only regret. And the only thing he hung on to was the rope around his neck. Peter is probably the clearest New Testament example of Psalm 130, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And we would say that, wouldn't we? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Jesus said, I am and was faithful. Peter said, I am not. And he failed. But failure does not equal rejection by God. It does help us to see who we really are and what we really Need a humble and repentant response to failure is the beginning of a new day where we are forgiven, where we're restored, and we're rejuvenated in a fresh vision for our life in Christ. This cracked pebble would eventually be a rock in the church. And friends, the reality is there's not a person in this room who hasn't failed or isn't about to fail. But failure doesn't mean the end. How you respond to that failure from a biblical perspective may actually be the beginning of new life in Christ because of that failure. Turn to God. Bow yourself before him. Worship and adore him. You know, we often view God as this mean, ogre person. But that's not who we see in this text. We see him, yes, dealing with sin. (laughs) His son was the main way he dealt with sin. And providing forgiveness and restoration through his son's sacrifice. We look at Peter and we don't, 
We don't scream at Peter. We, we join hands with him and say, we are just like you. And yet, God wasn't done with Peter, and he's not done with us. Lord, help us today. Help us to contemplate the beauty of what it is that you allow to happen in our lives as means of growing us to be what you want us to be. Trials and difficulties sometimes are there to show us things about ourselves that we did not even realize were there. Places where we are self-sufficient, places that we have hidden, places that, that undermine our pursuit of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, would you liberate us through trial and through repentance and forgiveness to be the kind of people that you're raising us up to be. And Lord, may Gateway be a community of believers that is not so quick to find fault, but is quick when fault is found to point one another to Christ and to encourage a humble and gracious reception of God's kindness and mercy as well as a pursuit of godliness for your glory. We don't deserve what you give us, but Lord, we worship you as being our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died as a ransom for many. We ask this now in your name. Amen.